You'll probably remember that Solomon, at the end of his journey in life, and at the end of the journal that he wrote about life, wrote to youth, and he said, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth. You would think somebody older would say that. But a youth hearing that would say, Oh, but youth is the time for fun. Remember saying that? When I grow older and there's nothing left to do in life that's fun, then I'll think about the Lord. Don't you think it's funny that teenagers complain that there's nothing to do and then they stay out all night getting it done? On a serious note, 70% of high school graduates leave the church never to return. 65% of evangelical teenagers never read their Bibles. 42% of Protestant teenagers say there are many ways to God. Now that says a lot about kids, but it also, I think, says a lot about parents, Christian parents, and Christian churches. Once upon a time, there was a church staff looking for teachers for youth. Some adult said, I don't want to leave the sweet fellowship and study of my class. But the drug pusher on the street said, not even the threat of jail will keep me from working with your children. And some adult said, I could never give the time required to plan and go to teachers' meetings. But the pusher and the porno book dealer and the movie producer said, We'll stay open whatever hours are necessary every day to win the minds of the kids. Some adults said, well, I'm unsuited and untrained and unable to work. Preschoolers or youth, not my thing. But the movie producer said, we will study and survey and spend millions of dollars to produce whatever turns kids on. So the adults stayed in their classes and enjoyed sweet fellowship and absorbed good Bible study. And when Sunday came, the kids went to their classes, and no one was there except the church staff going from one room to another, trying to assure them that someone would surely come to teach them some Sunday soon. But no one ever came. And the kids soon quit coming, because they had gone to listen to others who did care about the things they did, and did care about what went into their minds. Today we're going to look at Jesus' early life, his early life, up to the time he was a teenager. And we're going to look at not only his commitment, but part and parcel of that would be his parents' commitment to him as a young child. Last week we started this and we looked at Jesus with his circumcision in the temple and his dedication in the temple 30 days after that, his visitation by the Magi sometime after that. And we continue in that same vein of Jesus growing up until he was age 30. We're going to look at Luke because Luke gives us the most comprehensive part of it. These are the formative years of Jesus' life, you might say. These are the years when uh, character is cemented in a person when the future is determined by the events of childhood. Now what we're going to do is just look at two slices as Luke gives it in chapter 2. One he writes generally, the other he writes specifically. One is about his general development, 
as a child. The other is a specific incident. The first takes place in Nazareth, where he spent most of his life. The second in Jerusalem, where he spent a portion of his life. The first shows his developing humanity. The second shows his divine capacity. An incident of Jesus at the temple. Now, Luke does something you should just make note of. He omits what Matthew includes. Matthew tells us that the Magi came and informed the family that Herod wanted to kill the child. And so, being warned by an angel, they fled to Egypt. Luke omits completely the whole Egypt scene and picks it up as Jesus is in Nazareth as a youth. So let's look in verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. These two short verses give Jesus' life from about age 2 to age 30. And the only thing we have besides that is the next incident that he begins in verse 41. We'll get to that in a minute. But those two verses show his development, a well-rounded development, Luke tells us in verse 40. He mentions the place. The place is Nazareth. Now this is where Jesus spent most of his years growing up. Till he was about age 30, he spent it in Nazareth. Why? Because that was the place of Joseph's trade. He was a carpenter. Even though his lineage was in Bethlehem, Nazareth was the place he had been living. He was a carpenter, and so they went back. In fact, Jesus' title will become Jesus of Nazareth, used 17 times in the New Testament. It's not Jesus of Bethlehem, though he was born there. It's not Jesus of Capernaum, though he spent his three-and-a-half-year headquarters in Capernaum. It's not Jesus of Jerusalem, though he walked into the temple and regarded it as his father's house. But he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, early Christians were called Nazarenes, not the denomination, but followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Even Paul the Apostle, they said, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So this is the place that forms his identity, Nazareth. Let me tell you about Nazareth. There wasn't really much to tell. It's just a a little village, still there, but much bigger today, on the hill of a very steep slope as part of Mount Carmel. It's situated about 14 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and about the same distance inland from the Mediterranean Sea. From Jesus' home, he could look six miles across the valley of Armageddon and see Mount Tabor, where Deborah and Barak fought in the book of Judges. He could see the trade routes coming from Egypt up through Damascus and Mesopotamia. But it really wasn't on the main road. It was just close enough to it. The village of Nazareth at Jesus' time, get this, was probably only about 120,000 square feet, the entire village. The population base, about 1,800 to 2,000 max in that tiny little village. I'm sure the kids in Nazareth got bored, don't you? I can hear all the kids in Nazareth saying, there's nothing to do in this dirt town. 
Jerusalem is where the action is. But that's where Jesus grew up. You see, Nazareth was a hick town. That's what all the people in the big city of Jerusalem regarded it as. Why? First of all, it was in Galilee. And there's a phrase in the Old Testament, the Galilee of the Gentiles. It had a Gentile influence. It was unsophisticated. It was never mentioned once in the Old Testament. Josephus never mentioned it once. The Apocrypha never mentions it once. And the Talmud, the commentaries of the Jews, never mention it. In fact, when it is mentioned, it's mentioned scornfully. When Philip went to Nathanael and said, We found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what his response was. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just wasn't much to speak of. What I love is though that is true, the risen, glorified Jesus Christ spoke about Nazareth from heaven. That's right. When Paul the Apostle in Acts 22 is giving his testimony before the Jews in Jerusalem, and he tells a story about being on the Damascus Road, and he sees this bright light and gets knocked off of his beast of burden, and he says, Who are you, Lord? He said unto me, said Paul, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And what I love about that is here you have a town scorned by men, but taken to heaven, if you will, and made glorious. Now, there is a principle here. In fact, let's call it the Nazareth principle. It is just like God to take towns like this and have the Messiah born in them. Or to take you at your place of a Nazareth and make something wonderful out of that. Here's the principle. I'm just going to read it to you. It sort of forms my life verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to it. For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has deliberately chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise or to put them to shame. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, and here's the reason, so that no flesh would glory in His presence. And here's the point. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter where you live. What matters is who you are and what you do. Here is Nazareth despised, tiny, hick town. And God says, the Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem will grow up in Nazareth. So what did the Messiah do the first 30 years of his life? Lived a routine life in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You might look at your town and think, yeah, but I'm from Teheris. I'm not from New York. Doesn't matter if you're from New York or to Harris. Doesn't matter if you're from Los Angeles or Albuquerque. If you're from Chicago or Espanola. Well, <laughs> God can do anything with who you are, wherever you are. There's a plant. 
called the century plant. And here's why it's called that. Because of the long intervals in between the flowering, there's these long, abnormally, just stagnant periods of time where it seems like nothing is happening in this plant. The intervals last from five to a hundred years in between flowering. But those intervals of rest are just as much a part of the plant's existence as the blossoming. Do you remember when the children of Israel came back from captivity and they looked at this temple, this meager temple that was being built, and many of them started weeping because they compared it to the old temple? God, through the prophet Zechariah, said, Why do you despise the days of small things? I just want you to keep this in your mind. We focus on the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry for an obvious reason. That was his life's work and atonement, etc. But he spent 30 years in preparation for those three and a half years of ministry. Look in verse 40. Luke is the sole source of these early years. And what I want you to notice about verse 40 is that everything about Jesus' life from age 2 to age 30 is summed up in one verse. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus developed physically. It says, and the child grew. The Greek word axano means the normal, natural process of growth of a living thing. In this case, a pideon, a child. Jesus grew up normally. He was a normal kid or as A.T. Robertson called him, a hearty, vigorous little boy. Jesus, in his incarnation, accepted the full development process of youth. Paul the Apostle tells us that he took on himself the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, or he came as a man. He was the firstborn male in a Jewish family, By that virtue, he had the place of status as the future head of the family. He was breastfed by Mary for probably two to three years. That's how Jews did it back then. The weaning process did not end until the child was about three. But it brings up a point that I just thought I'd touch on. That's the physical growth of Jesus. What did he look like exactly? Well, we don't know because it's interesting that in the entire scripture, there's not one single physical description of him as to his height, color of hair, etc. Now, if you follow the holy cards or the Renaissance art or the American ideal in all of the movies, you would think that Jesus was lean, long, light brown, flowing hair, blue eyes, and taller than his disciples. If that were the case, no doubt the gospel writers would have told us because he would have been the exception of every other Jewish male living at the time. The best evidence we have from history and archaeology and DNA evidence of first century Semites, Jewish males, Jesus had dark eyes, not blue, dark hair, not light brown. He had a beard, according to Jewish custom, and probably... By all the other evidence, his hair wasn't long, but shorter and tightly curled. Now, I know somebody's going to say, but now wait a minute, I saw that PBS special about the Shroud of Turin. And that's supposed to be the burial cloth of Jesus. Of course, 
you know that the Shroud of Turin is highly disputed, and I believe it is not even comes close to fitting a New Testament description of burial, and I don't think it is the burial cloth. And here's one of the reasons, is because the Shroud of Turin depicts Jesus as having this long, flowing hair and being very lean, when Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 9 said that he had seen the Lord Jesus, two chapters later he says, doesn't nature tell us that for a man to have long hair is a shame and a disgrace to him? And so because of that, scholars in piecing it together have said, Jesus didn't look like what we in America think he looks like. There's a magazine that I saw on the shelf and I got this week called The Real Face of Jesus in Popular Mechanics. Well... I I know, of all places, right? Like they would know. Yeah, they found him in a machine shop over... No. When I was in the airport and I looked at this, I saw two gals talking, oh, the real face of Jesus, and they opened it up and looked at the depiction in the magazine, which I'm not going to show you because it will throw you the rest of the study. But um, they closed it and said... I like the one at my church better. But the article said, from an analysis of the skeletal remains, archaeologists firmly established that the average build of a Semite male at the time of Jesus was 5 foot 1 inch, with an average weight of 110 pounds. Since Jesus worked outdoors as a carpenter until he was 30, it's reasonable to assume that he was more uh, more muscular and physically fit than westernized portraits suggest. So much shorter, stockier than what the movies have depicted him. He developed, he grew, the child grew. Uh, Notice also that he grew and developed spiritually. It says he became strong in spirit. Now here we're dealing with the human development of Jesus. I know he was God in human flesh, But he submitted himself to a process of development whereby he was trained in depth and spiritual knowledge by his parents, by the rabbis in the synagogues, etc. Spiritual training for Jewish kids, back then especially, started very young and was very intense because kids had more responsibility at a much younger age. Paul noted of Timothy... How from a child, from an infant, he says, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise into salvation. So they started these kids young. Can't you just picture Timothy's mom reciting verses of scriptures? She's bouncing young Timothy on her knee. Rabbi Judah Bentima said that Jewish boys should learn the scripture at age five the Mishnah, or the Oral Law, at age 10. They should learn to fulfill all of the law in being responsible for it at age 13, when they were bar mitzvahed. And then they should study the Talmud, all of those commentaries, at age 15. The mother was more directly responsible for this early development. 85% of a child's character is developed in the first five years of life. No better way to start them out than with the Bible. But then it's not just mom. Dad would get involved too. But because dad had the trade, he had the job, Joseph had the workshop, you've got to picture Joseph and Jesus sort of walking around Nazareth and Joseph finding a life situation and explaining a spiritual principle to him 
because that's what dads were commanded to do in Deuteronomy 6. Impress these upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In fact, the worth of a Jewish father was measured by how he raised his kids. They would look at the kids and his worth would then be measured. Now, on a related note, never underestimate the spiritual acumen of a child. There is a sensitivity to spiritual things that we should always be aware of and never bypass. Oh, they're too young. Polycarp, the early church martyr, came to Christ at age nine. Jonathan Edwards, whose preaching stirred New England, came to Christ at age seven. Count Zinzendorf, who started a missionary movement called the Moravian Movement, signed a covenant at age four, which read, Dear Savior, do thou be mine, and I will be thine. And he stuck with it. And he turned his part of the world upside down with the missionary movement. Isaac Watts, we sing Joy to the World every Christmas season. He wrote it. At age nine, came to Christ. Charles Spurgeon, age 12. In fact, Charles Spurgeon used to preach a lot on children coming to faith in Christ. And he used to say, before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. And better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. He believed in child evangelism. So Jesus developed physically. Jesus developed spiritually. Notice also in the same verse, Jesus developed mentally. It says, He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. Now, picture this young boy in Nazareth being filled with wisdom or learning things in a classroom. That's hard for us because we know that Jesus is all wisdom personified, as Paul wrote in Colossians. Of Christ, he said, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But again, humanly, he grew. He grew. He learned. He understood and a process of training. The word wisdom, Sophia is the word, means the capacity to understand something and then act wisely as a result. But the word filled is a present passive participle. In other words, it suggests an ongoing process of being filled that kept up in step with his physical growth. So we could translate this verse, as Jesus was growing up physically, he had a corresponding growth intellectually as well as spiritually. Now, honestly, that's not always the case with people. People grow physically, but sometimes they just let all the brain cells rest and don't exercise them. Benjamin Bloom, professor of education, University of Chicago, said, By age four, a child has formed one half of the intelligence he will have at full maturity. Now let's step into a classroom of Jesus in Nazareth, the typical first century classroom of a village. It was part of a synagogue, the school. It was next to the synagogue. The students would stand, the teacher would sit, or 
if the teacher was very generous, would let the pupil sit in a semicircle around the teacher. At age five, Jesus began a process of rote memorization of the scripture, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. In fact, the Bible was his only textbook until he was age 10. His study of the Bible began with, guess what book? Not Genesis, Leviticus. Leviticus was the first book. Now think of a five-year-old starting out memorizing chunks of Leviticus. He'd study Leviticus first, then he'd move on to the rest of the Torah, then after the Torah he'd study the prophets, and after the prophets he'd study the writings, all Old Testament. By age 13, Jesus came of age. He was responsible to become a son of the commandment. He was bar mitzvah. At that point, he was responsible to recite the Shema, Shema Israel, Adonai Echad, or Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He would have fasts that he would be allowed and expected to fulfill and to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, as we'll explain in just a few minutes. We also know that Jesus learned how to read and learned how to write. We know that because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he reads Isaiah 61 to the congregation. We know Jesus could write because in John chapter 8, a woman is caught in adultery and the religious elite are accusing the woman and Jesus writes in the ground. We don't know what he writes, but it was enough to convict those guys. Maybe he wrote their secret sins that they thought nobody knew of. And Jesus just sort of wrote them out in public. But whatever it was, they hightailed it out of there. Jesus also developed socially. Look over in verse 51, the end of the chapter. Then he went down, this is at age 12, no doubt, or after. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So that's another summary verse of his development. And I would say he developed socially. He's subject to his parents, honoring mother and father. He grew in favor with God and with men. Jesus, the Son of God, the one who knew more stuff than Mary or Joseph ever would, Jesus was subject to them to keep the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And what I want you to notice about this verse in particular is this is right after an incident when Jesus goes to Jerusalem at age 12. So we think Jesus was 12 years of age, just perhaps turning into a teenager. The very time when kids change their views of their parents. And submission doesn't come easily after this point, does it? Uh, I say that the view of parents changes. You know, at first, to a kid, mom and dad, they're superheroes. That's when the child's about that big. They're toddlers. Then they grow up and they become teenagers. And at teenagers, you're not a superhero anymore. You're tolerated. You're a necessity. You're a super geek in some cases to your kids. But here's Jesus at this age. Somebody said amen. It was an adult too. (laughs) 
Here's Jesus submitting at this age gracefully, graciously to his parents. Honoring, being subject to them. Something else about Jesus, he had siblings. A lot of people either are not taught this or they forget about it. In fact, Jesus grew up in a poor family and a large family. He had at least four brothers that are mentioned, and he had sisters, plural, so that would mean at least two. So Jesus was one of at least seven children in the home. And he grew in favor with God and people, men. Matthew 13, it tells us, as he's in Nazareth, the rest of the people say of him, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, plural? Are they not all with us? So Jesus grew in a household, a poor household, with a lot of kids, a lot of brothers and sisters. He was not the sole child. He grew with them. Now, Jesus was the oldest. He was their firstborn. And as the oldest, he would have worked alongside Joseph in the carpenter's shop. And no doubt, when Joseph died, and we presume he died quite young, Jesus would have taken over the carpenter's shop in Nazareth until he was age 30 and he laid down his tools and he went to the Jordan River. A carpenter. But don't think Black and Decker. Don't think drill press or all of the fancy tools that we have in our garages. Think very primitive. Think of the basic necessities of a a line, a compass, a plane in which to scrape things, uh, an awl in which to drill things. Um, Think of uh, iron and bronze nails, a stone hammer attached to a piece of wood. The saws were little bands of metal set in a wood frame. Isn't it strange that Jesus worked with wood and nails? the very things he died with. That's his upbringing. That's his upbringing in Nazareth. One final thing we're going to look at, and that is the incident taking place beginning in verse 41. And let's just read this. This takes place not in Nazareth, but Jerusalem. And this is the sole exception to a generalization given by Luke, who said this child grew physically, mentally, spiritually, socially. But here's one incident Departing now from human development, showing his divine capability. It says in verse 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. So it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. 
So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. The occasion is Passover. This is one of the three annual feasts that every Jewish male living within a 15-mile perimeter of Jerusalem was compelled to go to. If you lived outside of that 15-mile perimeter, you were still they still thought you ought to go to it. And if you couldn't because you were poor, then if you had to take one feast, it would be Passover. That was the most important feast of the year. They traveled in caravans because you're thinking, how do you lose your kid? How do you go to Jerusalem and then after a day, you go, where is he? How do you lose a child? Well, ever been Christmas shopping with your child in the mall? It's easy easy to do. They traveled in caravans. Whole villages would go out. Lots of relatives. The moms and the kids started out, set the pace. The dads and the other guys, the budding young men, would follow behind them to watch out for marauders. The children would flit about from group to group. So they're going thinking, Joseph's thinking, oh, Jesus is probably with the rest of the kids. They're up with Mary. Mary's thinking, oh, Jesus, he's a little older now. He's probably back with Joseph and the guys. But they go a day's journey. They discover Jesus is not with them. Something I want to interject. Jesus was 12, the scripture says. It could be that he, and many believe this, was 12 turning 13. He was going to Jerusalem for the Passover and his bar mitzvah. When you go from 12 to 13 and you become a child of the commandment, an adult male in the Jewish community, You get to don the tefillin, the phylacteries, for the first time. You get to read from the Sefer Torah, the book of the law, for the first time in public. Which sort of goes back to when Jesus was born. The early church, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, traditionally believed Jesus was born around the Passover. So Jesus could be 12, turning 13, where he's going to be bar mitzvah. But I want you to notice verse 46. So it was that after how many days? Three days they found him in the temple. This is how it worked. They left Jerusalem, were going back home, that one day's journey out. After a day they go, hey, he's not with us. So it's another day's journey back to Jerusalem. That's two days. The third day they spent looking for him and they found him. But he was gone from them for three days. And notice in verse 48, where Mary says, Look, your father and I have sought for you anxiously. The word means sorrowfully, in deep distress, in great anguish. What do you think was going through their minds as Jesus wasn't with them? He's what? What's the fear of every parent? He's dead. So after three days to find their son alive was to them like a resurrection. He's alive. He's here. Their anxiety ceased. And I mentioned that Because it's like a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit of what would happen 20 years in the future. When just after another Passover in Jerusalem, at which Jesus would be crucified, he would, three days later, appear before his disciples. 
and his mother. Now notice the contrast. It's very obvious. Verse 48. Your father and I have sought for you anxiously. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. The next couple of verses say Jesus went to Nazareth, submitted himself to his parents. He honored them. He was subject to them. But his allegiance to his father always overrode any human responsibility. Here is a boy with a purpose at every stage of his development. And Luke brings this out so you would know he lived with a purpose. It was always, what does my Father in heaven want? What does my Father in heaven want? I've often wondered what the uh, discussion was about. We know that at every Passover, the Sanhedrin would get together in the court of Solomon and they would have theological discussions. Now, this is just described very briefly, but this questioning is in Hebrew called the She'ilot, and it is a deep, intensive, intellectual, arguing, questioning, answering. And a 12-year-old boy is holding his own. And they're all going, Wow! How do you do that? And he says to his mother, I must be about my father's business. Now, I'd like to close this message this way. I don't know what your life verse is. I don't even know if you have one. But it could be that you're at a place now, at this Christmas season, after whatever has gone on in your life, that, that you want to really do it right. You want your life to be right. You want to be committed totally to God. You're rededicating your life to Christ. Or maybe you're transitioning. Maybe you're about to graduate at the end of this year. Or this year you're going to get married or start a new career path. But you want to do it right. You couldn't have a greater banner statement to write over your life than this. I must be about my father's business. There's your goal in life. Whatever you do in your marriage... Whatever you do in your ministry, whatever you do in your career to further your education, I must always be about my father's business. Your father's business. Remember as a kid being told, mind your own business. I'm telling you tonight, don't mind. We have a whole world minding its own business. Mind his business. Do the family business. And what's God's business? Well, it says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the family business. God wants people to get to heaven. You and I are given the glorious opportunity to share in the family business. Is that your business? Is that your overriding goal in life? Gordon Dahl writes these words, Most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work to work at their play, and to play at their worship. As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. Their relationships disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair, and their lifestyles resemble, listen to this, their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. I want to give you the plot tonight. Here's the plot. Your life needs a plot. 
your father's business. Be about your father's business. But it's Christmas time. Be about your father's business. But the New Year's coming up. It's tax time. Be about your father's business. Heavenly Father, so often we make it all about us. About our happiness. About our place. About our fulfillment. And that's so far removed from the Father's business. Lord, you told us something that we, we should also keep in mind as we close. You sort of made a deal with us. You told us that if we would seek first the kingdom of God above everything else, that all of these other things that we need would be added to us. Help us, Lord, not to reverse that process by seeking what should be added to our lives and expect you to throw in the kingdom of God, but rather to live with the priority of a life with purpose. We see that purpose in Jesus' life at his circumcision, at his dedication. We see it at his visitation by the Magi. We see it as the general overriding principle of his life, the years of preparation, working hard, submitting to parents, growing and learning intellectually and spiritually, and then saying at a young age, my life is all about dad's business, the family business. Well, Lord, we boldly call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, and if that be the case... I pray that we would not play at our worship. We need a plot, Lord, and may this plot be ours not only this Christmas season, but the rest of the year. Our banner verse, the statement that overrides every hallway in our life, I must be about my Father's business. What a delight, Lord. Thank you for the commission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.